Hey everyone, it's Adam Farkas with another edition of OD Wire Radio, and I'm here as usual with Paul Farkas. Hi everyone, and as a little different today, I have something to say. Oh my gosh, Paul's got something oh, to say, so everyone <laughs> listen up. So, okay, no, Paul, go, yes, go ahead. I'm, I'm ready for this incredible yes, statement. Uh, today we have uh, the AOS, the American Optometric Society, giving us an update on uh, what's happening uh, with the organization. However, in the interest of full disclosure, we have to say that uh, I did invite the AOA, the American Optometric Association, as well as the ABO, the American Board of Optometry, uh, to also participate and have their own radio show. Uh, and it's up to them to respond to me, and uh, hopefully they'll come on. Uh, that may, They may have a slightly different point of view than our guests today. So with that said, Ed, take it away. Great. And so our guest today is Dr. Michael Rosenblatt. Uh, Dr. Rosenblatt's been in private practice uh, since graduation, I guess, which 1990. So that's, uh, you know, it sounds like it was just yesterday, but I guess it really isn't, is it? It doesn't feel like just yeah. anymore. So, uh, so Dr. Rose- Rosenblatt has been very active, actually, in organized optometry uh, throughout his career. And he's currently a director at the American Optometric Society. And what we're going to do today, for, for those who don't sort of follow along on ODYR with all the different acronyms and board certification and the different groups, what we're going to do today is give you a little overview of the American Optometric Society. And as Paul mentioned before, you know, we're more than happy and willing to give equal time to other groups as well who, who want to come on uh, and speak with us. But today we've got Dr. Rosenblatt. So, Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate you inviting us and giving us this chance to uh, reach out and tell our story. Great. Well, why don't we start from sort of base principles here, pretending that we know nothing about anything. So explain to us when and why the American Optometric Society was started. Well, I think, uh, you know, you talked about all the different acronyms, and unfortunately, I'm only going to add to that, I think. Um, But in August of 2009, which was after, of course, the Washington, D.C. AOA 2009 House of Delegates Uh, there was a group formed called the Association of Concerned Optometrists. And that was in direct response to, at that point, the creation of the ABO. And the concern at that point, why that group began, which was really just a uh, a very uh, loose uh, affiliation of optometrists uh, online, I mean, because that's the only way that it was being spread at that point, that were really upset with the decision, one, to create the ABO, but also the way the AOA did that, which appeared to be really in direct conflict with the wishes of the rank-and-file membership of the AOA. Um, you know, there's some very, very specific examples of states, California one in particular, that nicely took the time to uh, survey their California, the COA members, but in the end totally ignored what the survey results indicated. And California in particular, which at that point had, I think, about 190 votes, it was 191 or so, block voted all of those votes in favor of creating the ABO. And so it was that kind of underhandedness, so to speak, uh, you know, the, uh, that became sort of the tipping point with that passage as to why people became involved. Uh, and, you know, and, and it probably in reality is also the same people, myself included, our fault as to uh, not paying enough attention in the past and allowing this kind of thing to happen. Right. And so, and so now, now what we're looking for and, and why, we, why it became about is that we, uh, you know, we're seeking a voice in the profession. And so within that month, that month of August, so in that very short period of time, 
the organization was formalized, uh, formalized into and then renamed to the American Optometric Society. Got it. And who, who were the ODs uh, that originally started out in 2009 with this? Well, there were three ODs that were pretty much instrumental in creating the AOS. Um, Craig Steinberg, uh, who is JDOD, Art Epstein, and Dix, Dix, excuse me, and Dixon Chen. Uh, Craig was the, the the legal mind. Obviously, he's the one that uh, incorporated the organization. He's the one that followed. But actually, Craig's never been a board member. Uh, he was the general counsel. Uh, and he uh, was, of, of course, the counsel of record for the lawsuit. Uh, both Dixon and Art uh, were on the board, but only for a very brief time because they actually chose to concentrate on other endeavors after that. But were these people, uh, uh, AOA, loyalists up until this time? Were they ac- active in the AOA? Well, I mean, certainly uh, Art was very, very active in the AOA. Um, I do not know about Dixon, and Craig uh, was not an active participant in the AOA, and he has his story to, that he has told many times, and people can find that out or ask him about that. But his, his gripe was with the COA, and of course with the, uh, the marrying of the two, he was unable to maintain AOA membership uh, when he wanted to drop out of the COA. Uh, but when the board, the very first founding AOS board, more than 50% of those members or of the board, the founding board itself, were actually members in the AOA. And we had roughly about 120 years of ongoing AOA membership at the very beginning. Right. And, and many of those, like myself, have res- you know we've served on our respective local and state association executive boards. Others have served as well on state regulatory boards. So, you know, very involved, very involved group. Right. So after you sort of put the band together, so to speak, in 2009, what was one of the first things that you actually did? How did you, you kick things off to try to get the group going? Well, obviously, the first thing was, uh, you know, was membership. And, uh, you know, it, in the reality of that was, you know, and thank God, of course, for today's social media, that we were able to get members, put out the cause, talk about the voice, create a mission. I mean, we, you know, we've done all those things and uh, set dues structures, although we initially had uh, free dues, so that actually helped quite a bit, of course. But even with the conversion to paying dues, we, uh, we really didn't lose. We've only continued to keep growing. Right. How, how did the AOA uh, leadership respond to the AOS? They say, welcome aboard, guys, or were they upset? <laughs> um, they were, uh, I think, uh, you know, I don't know about upset. I think the initial uh, comments were that we were a bunch of uh, rabble-rousing uh, individuals, that that was our group. Uh, I think they thought of us as a, an annoyance that we only had a few members. Um, they certainly have always tried to, uh, you know, to minimize the effect of the OS. Um, you know, we've actually made uh, repeated offers to work together on certain things, and we've always been uh, rebuffed on that. Uh, you know, they they have, and very specifically, uh, we have been told directly by current, not current now, but I guess so past AOA presidents uh, to basically disband and tell our members to join the AOA, uh, even though a fair number of our members are already the AOA are in the AOA. Um, so we have seen that in the past. Um, and then, of course, at the most recent uh, AOA House of Delegates was probably the uh, probably the worst uh, attack, so to speak, um, where we uh, we experienced, you know, uh, our group, our president was, you know, publicly defamed in, uh, you know, in the AOA House of Delegates sensitive issues session. Um, I mean, it was, you know, obviously not a uh, something very becoming of a professional representative organization. You know, you should remember, I mean, you know, we 
because many of our members are still in the AOA, and thankfully for that, because we understand that's the way to make changes. You know, we never left the AOA. I mean, the, the issue is many of us feel is that the AOA has left us, and they're, they're the ones not paying attention to us anymore. Right. And so I guess the, the question that I have is, you know, the, the, the big topic that they talk about all the time on ODWire is the legal action, which I guess was sort of the, 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 the sort of most visible uh, initiative that the AOS has taken on. Can you speak to us at a very sort of fundamental and basic level for people who may not understand what the, the legal case was all about and the theory behind it? Well, the, the legal case began when the ABO... Uh, placed on their website uh, what appeared to be direct-to-consumer uh, promotion that was encouraging consumers to seek the services of an ABO-certified doctor above or well and above or instead of other doctors because these doctors were implied to be, and that's, of course, the result of everything, were implied to be more superior. So it was uh, an attempt by them, as we saw, to divide the profession, divide the profession into those doctors that had board certification or are board certified and those that aren't. And unfortunately, as, as many have seen, and certainly the, the court case has shown, uh, and even in many of the, uh, in the testimony from the ABO leaders themselves, their board certification does not, does not denote or any superiority whatsoever that it is a test of basically entry level um, and a test that has, of course, been curved down to allow other people to pass uh, or enough people to pass. Uh, so it really was just division uh, to if with a false or fake board certification program. Right. And in fact, you just mentioned a couple of uh, tidbits about the what, what came out at the trial, because obviously we're not privy to anything that's not public. We've only been able to see some of the documents that were released. Can you sort of speak to us about what was released, what the findings were, um, because obviously the trial just sort of wrapped up, and can you give us a summary of what's been going on? Well, I mean, the, uh, the trial, yes, is completed. Um, you know, it, it turned out, of course, that the uh, trial, as many have heard, was fairly one-sided in that the, uh, the trial itself, the area that we chose to uh, seek uh, relief from had to do with what's called the Lanham Act. And the Lanham Act has to do with false, misleading, deceptive advertising that harms individuals due to that falsity. And so the result of the trial itself was that we, the AOS, uh, were unable to meet that burden of proof as, a, as it pertains to the Lanham Act. And so we did not have sufficient evidence to show that there was uh, that there was this uh, these elements of falsity and deception and injury, and that's what it took to actually show that the, the Lanham Act was violated. And so, because we were able to show proof of that, so the reality of it, and interesting enough, is if we stop and think about it now, is maybe we were just premature. I mean, maybe we should have waited uh, sometime in the future when perhaps Doctor A. Uh, is losing patience to Dr. B down the street, who is now promoting that he's board certified uh, and claiming that he is uh, superior to Dr. A because he's board certified. And then maybe we would have been able to show that harm has occurred uh, due to this misleading board certification. 
so that that's part of it. Now, what what has stood, and the judge granted very early on, uh, and that was due to again the testimony of even the ABO leaders, is that their board certification does not denote anything superior in level of its training or specialty uh, or advanced knowledge for their diplomats. That it is nothing more than the same as any other OD that is licensed. That they have the same level of knowledge and experience. Right. So this means then that that you can't actually promote uh, a doc that's somehow superior or over and above because they have this board certification. Right. Now the limitation there is, you know, of course, as you get into a legal cases, there I think are seven terms or group of terms that the ABO had on their website at that point that they are enjoined from using. I'm sure there are others they could come up with. I mean, you know, very recently, and you know, the reality here is that when the AOA, 2009 AOA House of Delegates passed this resolution, uh, they were very specific to include a point that this designation would only be ever used for credentialing purposes because there was very much a concern at that point that those would go those would start people would start claiming him themselves as being superior uh, and that that would divide the profession and so that was the initial bylaw as approved by the ABO that it was that it was for that purpose unfortunately though in the recent past several months we're not sure exactly when the bylaws were changed where that provision was dropped. I see. And that then now says that anyone that is ABO could certainly want, if they choose to, could claim or use that certification for anything they want, not just for credentialing purposes. So so it means, however, it seems if OD wires discussions mean anything, uh, there are other optometrists that say, well, heck, I'm board certified by my state board, so I'm going to use the title board certification as well. Well, the, uh, one of the interesting things that came out of the court case uh, when Judge uh, Matz's ruling was that because this board certification was not a depiction or a representation of anything superior, that any board entity, so you're right, state board, NBEO, you know, national board uh, examiners, uh, the academy, potentially, COVD, uh, that any of these board groups can call their program a certification program and then thus people can call themselves board certified. So you are correct. So you could open tomorrow if you chose, you could open the OD wire board certification program. See, I'm I'm reminded of a line from the gondoliers, a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, uh, where they say, if everybody is somebody, then everyone is nobody. Body. And and you're correct, because that, uh, you know, as as we all know, or at least, and maybe we're wrong. I mean, maybe maybe the medical profession, the healthcare providers are wrong in what we assume to be the definition of board certified, what we think the public perception is. I mean, we always assumed the public perception that, uh, that this was a certification showing a completion and expertise in a specialty within your profession. But evidently, that's not necessarily the definition that the courts certainly have shown, and maybe that's not even what the public hey, thinks. Stepping back for a second, you know, you've obviously been following this for a very long time. One thing that I, I sort of can't figure out in my own mind is the genesis of this entire thing. 
Um, (laughs) I don't mean, you know, I'm not trying to be snarky or anything, but I'm really, I'm trying to get at sort of the core principles. How did this all actually get started? You know, if if this is not going to be something where Doc can claim any sort of superiority or differentiate himself marketing wise, why was this actually put in place? Was this all about credentialing? I, I actually believe that those involved way back when, you know, those, those founding, whatever, five, six people or whatever, truly believed that there was going to be a credentialing necessity. I really do. That hasn't come to fruition. I mean, obviously, board certification attempts were started, what, 12 years ago now, uh, when they started, when uh, there was an attempt with, and then it was called ABOP, um, and that failed. Uh, and then it obviously came back almost 10 years later. Uh, and, but I do think that they felt that there was perhaps the need for credentialing. The, the issue was, and, and this goes to, you know, the again, what is the definition of board certified? And should we change the definition of medical board certification just for the sake of fitting what our needs are? Um, that many believe, and probably rightly so, that we should have just called ourselves board certified. I mean, we, we've taken boards. We're state board certified. We're national board certified. We should have just called ourselves that from the start. Or the assumption should have been that we were all board certified, and let's go about now creating an MOC or MOL program, which in reality is what this has become. Right. And, and actually, as, as an MOC program, so where you, where you maintain your skills, do you actually find this to be a pretty good program? You know, I actually haven't paid enough attention to this as an MOC. I guess it's as good as any. I mean, many would argue, uh, especially those on perhaps the state board, would argue they're sort of already doing that. I mean, they have, uh, you know, except for us taking PAMs and SAMs. I mean, in that sense, I think it probably does fit the criteria of what a, a true MOC program is or MOL program. So, so this but, all, all but, may become mute, speaking of state boards. If the state boards decide, and certainly in North Carolina they already have decided, uh, that no one can use this, this term of board certification ex- except if, if they have a legitimate board certification with a residency and, and exams and everything that goes with it. Uh, and I'm, oh, the, I'm wondering how many uh, boards around the country, state boards, will then just follow North Carolina's lead. That's that's a very good question, and, it's, uh, and no one knows that answer. Um, you know, during this process, uh, prior to the conclusion of the lawsuit, uh, I know that we personally had asked uh, the state boards to respond to us uh, in terms of what their interpretation or what their expectation was for someone that used the term board certification. We got very few responses at that point, uh, many of which was kind of a wait and see, meaning that uh, they, were, they were very specific to say if, if and when a case comes up, then maybe we'll react to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you're going to find, I mean, obviously in any profession, you're going to find those who want to denote some superiority. And so they're going to claim this. I mean, you know, with the change in the bylaw, uh, that, you know, that there's definitely some concern with this change in the bylaw, um, you know, with having two AOA members on the ABO board, with having a House of Delegates that had supported this, yet the bylaw's been changed. The the reality is the AOA now is supporting a program that will divide the profession, for sure. I mean, if they're still, if they are still supporting ABO, and the resolution still exists, and the ABO is going to allow those to those some of them to claim they have it, and the rest of us don't. Then it's going to divide the profession. And you know, there's some talk, and probably rightly so, that the AOA should withdraw its support of the ABO unless that bylaw is put back. 
right? You know, just being for credentialing purposes. You know, some people on ODWire would say they take the opposite approach and they say, you know what, this lawsuit's over. You guys lost. You should just drop it and move on. Don't look backwards, look forwards. What would you say to, to someone who says something like that? Well, I mean, the, the, the question gets there to me is that when the ABO has gotten a mass of optometrists, and so far, by the way, they're nowhere near what their expectation was. Their initial RFP when they uh, sought uh, testing organizations was that they would have 15,000 test takers by year five. And of course, as we know, there's only been a thousand test takers thus far. And do you feel um, so that do you, way behind. do you feel that it has to do with the program itself, or do you think it has to do with the legal action that the AOS took? Oh, I, it probably uh, combined. I mean, I think it has to do with the way the program was passed. I mean, it certainly has to do with groups like OD Wire and Opcom List and things like that, where, where everyone's able to get the information out, and so that people can question or at least have the information to make up their own mind. <laughs> Don't, so shoot the Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. No, 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 no. We're thankful. No, we're not. Not. Uh, I'm not shooting the messenger. <laughs> no, you're not shooting the messenger. But everyone else wants to shoot me. I go to these conferences. I just. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, I bet. Well, uh, now you know how we all feel. <laughs> But the, uh, I mean, in terms of the the success of the ABO, the, the concern would be, of course, if they can get a critical mass, and that has been one of our concerns from the start. If they could get a critical mass, does a once voluntary program become mandatory? And so, for all those that say you lost, and you know, we lost in a very narrow. Uh, area, which is trying to show that they were sort of lying and causing harm to those. I mean, that's that's very very narrow. I mean, that that really was just a uh, you know a battle in this long drawn out war. Um, because if they get to that mass, then all those people who are saying you know just move on, I hope that they're ready and willing to pay eighteen hundred dollars to take the ABO exam, and to become certified and continue to pay the ABO every few years uh, or every year and then take exams every three exams every 10 years to continue that process because that's what's going to happen. Sure. And in fact, you know, we uh, we had the first ODY radio interview actually was with Mike Olson uh, from Coke. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sort of was thinking, well, if this actually does become mandatory, what's going to happen to Cope? Are they going to be superseded by this? Because who's going to want to take, you know, all of this extra education that's going to become very expensive very rapidly? Well, right, and that goes to, uh, you know, of course, you know, people have asked and people say what's next for the AOS or what has the AOS also worked on. I mean, we worked very closely with Mike on the ACOE uh, potential, uh, uh, I guess they wanted to um, certify, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, CE providers. Uh, so that, you know, everyone, and, and you know, and, and there's lots of people that say there's, you know, we're all conspiracy theorists and things like that. But the question gets to be, if, if all of that power, ABO board certification, sort of under the AOA, continue education, sort of under the AOA, all falls under one thing, I mean, what do you think we're all going to have to do? I mean, we're all going to have to follow their rules, take their classes, go to their courses, we're all going to have to do that just so that we can maintain our certification that they have forced us all to, to become. Right. So, so just uh, for our listeners who are who don't really keep up with this, uh, we start using terms again like Arbo, Mike Olson. Well, who's he? Uh, he happens to be the chairman 
of the Association for Regulatory Boards of Optometry. Uh, and that's a very, very important and powerful function. Uh, and uh, he's quite aware of what's going on. And for those of you that have not heard it, our first broadcast, uh, you might want to tune into Mike Olson to, to pull everything together. And, and, and think about what that group is. I mean, that group is made up of all of the state and territorial regulatory boards. I mean, those are the people that now are making your decisions for your licenses, how you're licensed, what's required of your licenses. Those are the people that are, are involved from the state level in terms of how an, how an optometrist maintains their license. And the important part to understand is that the, these people on the boards are not political. Uh, they are uh, there for the public welfare over over optometric welfare, so absolutely. So therefore, it's it's a whole different group of people that are on these boards. Yep. So, and so I guess then you know this leads me to sort of the ultimate question: What's the AOS going to do going forward? You know, there's this huge rift, and we keep seeing it on OD wire, and the the brawls continue. What do you think? You know, or what's your plan going to be to try to sort of heal this rift go, going going forward? Well, I mean, you know, to, to, to heal the, the rift is, uh, you know, it, that's a, it's a two-party issue, obviously. Um, you know, we, I mean, we plan to continue to fight the fight to prevent the ABO and, ABO and the AOA from, you know, further dividing the profession as they seem fit on doing. Um, we also, though, we want to make, and we've said this from, from the beginning, that if the AOS is successful, the AOA itself will be a much stronger and more representative organization. And there's no question in our mind that if we could make a, a organization that actually I, I think, I mean, I've seen titles on probably, I haven't seen the OD wire title, but I'm sure it's the same one. I've kind of one was about, do you trust the AOA? They have a trust issue right now within the profession. That's not a good thing to have when you're supposed to be the leading association, the representative of the, of the profession. And so we have always felt that if we can steer them on the path that their membership wants, which is more representation, greater transparency, the members want to say in perhaps how, at least feel they have a say in how things are done, even in voting. I mean, here we are in the, the 21st century, and the AOA still uses a very antiquated voting system. I mean, they still have delegates that are almost always selected by uh, the president of the state association. So you're talking about, or even the president of the local societies, you're really talking about, you know, only one or two levels removed from the board of the AOA, that they're selecting the people that they want. Or, unfortunately, in, in many states, it's, you know, whoever shows up at the AOA meeting, can you sit in, please? Um, they still allow block voting. So there's a lot of peer pressure, obviously, to even speak your mind, even if you are a delegate. I mean, these things are kind of, you know, very antiquated and silly for uh, a 21st century association and voting system. You know, many people would say that creating a separate group is less effective than actually working inside the system to try to reform it. How would you respond to that? Uh, I would say that two things. One is we are sort of working inside, but because of this system that they have in place and the system that's been in place for years, it's very difficult, of course, to, to make change. 
Um, you know, I'll give you the example. Uh, they just had uh, elections, board elections this year, and the uh, Ohio Association had a candidate that they were putting up, a uh, very qualified candidate. Uh, and the word, although not publicly stated, but the word that was passed around from the, in the committee to others on the floor was do not vote for this gentleman because he is supported by the AOS. He's the AOS candidate. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, that's what was discussed. <laughs> and, uh, and so this person, of course, did not win. Um, I have personally been on, I was not there this year because I had uh, other commitments, but I have been at the uh, two of the past three House of Delegates. I have been there uh, to put forth uh, motions uh, to try and bring about some change. Some motions have made it to the floor. Most have not. Uh, Some have, though, interestingly enough, at times putting forth a motion brings about change anyways. Uh, I mean, we have seen that before, that it brings about a response. Uh, so we are trying from within. It, that's, that is a very slow and long process. The other issue there gets to be in what the AOS allows us to do, of course, is to communicate to the masses as to what's going on. Right. And, you know, the, it, the AOA leadership turns over very rapidly. So even though this, they might have a, a slow process in place, I sort of wonder as time moves on, are you making better sort of headway with the new leadership that comes in to the AOA? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, at times we think so, but I mean, you really have, I mean, if you look at the leadership, I mean, you are correct. I mean, by the time you end up speaking with the AOA president and you make some effort to establish any rapport, they're out the door. I mean, their, their term's done. You are correct on that. Uh, so then if we look and say, okay, well, let's look uh, down the ladder a couple rungs and let's try that. Um, but if you look at what's coming, I mean, you know, you have the uh, a ABO board member that's going to be AOA president in two years. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, you know, someone that was instrumental in formulation of this whole process, the process that has divided the profession, that's created the trust issues, that has given birth to the AOS is going to be president of the AOA. Right. Well, it looks like we're just about running out of time. Do you have any sort of uh, parting words for uh, for all of our listeners? Oh, I have lots of stuff we could talk about. <laughs> I mean, for, from the AOS standpoint, we really didn't get into the AOS. Maybe we should do this uh, again sometime, which we can talk about how the AOS is, uh, you know, how we've been successful, the other things that we've done. Um, but the AOS is a, a member-represented organization. Every one of our members has a vote, has a say. Our board is directed by what our members want. Um, so looking at even the lawsuit, you know, there was a survey done, and that was the result of the survey, that our members wanted us to, to do that. Um, we have done many things within the AOA, as we said. Uh, we've put on and we do uh, top-notch CE seminars. We've had uh, two public service announcements that aired on nearly 200 stations plus the Armed Forces Radio, reaching over 8 million listeners. And those were basically urging listeners to seek regular eye care from their optometrist. Uh, we have, um, you know, we've kept the ABO from forming or creating a mandatory program. I mean, it is still voluntary and one that hasn't been obviously supported of yet, it appears. Uh, we have helped uh, support candidates, political candidates. We've also helped in individual states. We don't intend or want to replace the AOA, um, but we do, I think, there is room for both organizations. 
Uh, I see the AOA as the representative of the profession of optometry, but I see the AOS as becoming the representative of the individual optometrist. And that's a big distinction. I mean, Very they well have put. sort of lost their way. Right. Great. Well, Mike, it looks like we're running out of time here, but thanks so much for speaking with us today, and perhaps we could do this again in the near future. Oh, I'd love to. I've, uh, you know, much more I could talk about. All, all uh, you know, about AOS, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate so much. the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks.